0: Anybody have any questions about uh, what we've talked about so far? <laughs> okay, the last little comment on this section. Oh yes. I did have question. Good. It came up earlier, and it kind of you went into it later as well. But talking about these um, these different
1: expressions of the mind. What I'm used to is not the hermit. You hear more about the bodhisattva, who is driven purely by this this sense of um, of un, un, unlimited compassion and trying to bring all other sentient beings to the same point they've reached. Yes. And almost like that's the only thing that motivates them. So I'm wondering, with these like the, the crusty guys in the caves, what's <laughs> when, what actually gets them moving? Because it's, assume that there'd be nothing left to motivate. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, would, what would keep them going? Are they trying to de- attain deeper insights for themselves? The
0: the, the question is uh, uh, what keeps the crusty guys crusty? <laughs> what, keep, what
1: keeps the crusty guys going?
0: What keeps the crusty guys going? Uh, that is a very good question. Actually, that's uh, a, uh, a question that a couple of other people asked me about on, on the break. Uh, Let me tell you a little interesting thing about uh, about that. Um, I'll jump ahead and uh, read you a little quote on page. Let's see. page four, uh, second paragraph about some popular notions about enlightenment. <coughs> and so we will be talking more about this. But. Uh, all such expectations are doomed. As William Hamilton said, I haven't met an Arhat who wasn't a unique caricature of the personality he was before enlightenment. And as Sayadaw Upandida once said, because of habit patterns, it's possible for an arahant to be obnoxious. However, the difference with arahants is that if it is pointed out to them that they are obnoxious, they are capable of reflecting on situations and changing their behavior. Now, that's arahants. That's the highest level of enlightenment. There was an interesting study done by Engler and Brown back in the 70s that uh, they had uh, uh, they had people at several different stages of enlightenment uh, as uh, as judged by their teachers and, and their peers and they did a variety of, of uh, personality evaluations on them. Uh, they were looking for to see if there were any particular patterns that, or associated with, they weren't only looking at stages of insight. There are stages of enlightenment. They were also looking at stages of insight preceding enlightenment. So it was a pretty good study, but what they found is that in the in sort of the middle stages of enlightenment, that uh, the personality characteristics were quite exaggerated. So, whatever personality characteristics a person had before would tend to become exaggerated. What they found that was really interesting with arhats. now uh, this, uh, this quote I just read you from uh, William Hamilton, says arhats are a caricature of the personality that they had before. But uh, they also... They're not really—they're not really the crusty, obnoxious ones, <laughs> because they may—they may have some, as a caricature of the personality they were before, they may come across as being, you know, rough and uh, or, or these kinds of characteristics. But underlying that, their greatest desire is to teach and to help other people. And this is what Engler and Brown found, is that uh, in, in the Asian Arhat that they were interviewing, they gave him a series of Rorschach inkblots, which was a part of their investigation they did. And he turned the whole series of inkblots into a teaching. <laughs> <laughs> And they said it was incredible. They never imagined that anybody could do that. But he turned a series of inkblots, and the interpretation of it was just this wonderful teaching, you know. And they found something similar with uh, a uh, a shaman that was hugely admired and, and and taken to be a very very holy man. That when they. Uh, when they interviewed him and they did these tests, everything they did, he would turn it into a teaching and a guidance for them. And so I think this is a difference that you get with it. In the intermediate stages of enlightenment, the person still has, you know, they still have some degree of attachment, some degree of sense of self, some degree of desire and aversion, depending on the stage that you're at, which is what we're going to be talking about next. But and their personality characteristics tend to come out even more strongly. So, you know, somebody who was uh, an aloof, uh, inpatient, maybe a little bit uh, 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 misanthropic to begin with, you know, they may make a lot of wonderful changes in themselves and achieve the first or the second stage of enlightenment. But they still have these characteristics. And they may become very exaggerated. And so they may be the ones that you know sit in a cave and they don't want anybody to come around. I don't know, I'd have to go to a tour of the Himalayas and check in on the caves <laughs> to, to validate this. But that's my guess, is that, is that uh, uh, from... Uh, I've been having a wonderful time on and off this last couple of years studying enlightenment and all of the things that's written about enlightened beings. And this picture is emerging, you know, that, that fits with this. That in the middle stages, that uh, this is where you might get some of this. Like one of uh, Jack Cornfield's teachers, there was an article that Jack Cornfield wrote uh, for I um, can't remember the name of it now. That happens to me sometimes. Does anybody know that newspaper format uh, journal that Spirit they... Rock. What's that? Spirit Rock. Uh, but, yeah. It was, a tricycle? Not. Tricycle is a glossy magazine. This looks like a newspaper. It comes out quarterly or twice a year. Oh, hey, the inside, the insight uh, insight
1: yeah. meditation bike. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. But anyway, he wrote an article in there once, talking about his different teachers, and he talked about this one teacher who, you know. Uh, shouted at people and smoked cigars and kicked the cat and and all that sort of stuff. Well, this doesn't sound like your idea of an enlightened person. But nobody said he was an arhat. But he was a teacher in the Mahasi tradition. And in that tradition, uh, you're not allowed to become, uh, or you're not formally recognized as a teacher until you attained the second uh, level of enlightenment. So I think I take him to be an example of that. You know, he was—he was at uh, maybe the second level of enlightenment, qualified as a teacher, but definitely not an arhat. So some of these personality characteristics that he had would still manifest. But uh, that's about as good an answer as I can give you to that one. <laughs> so I guess I think this is what you're
1: saying. But basically, the way you described it is once you once you really attain like the level of an not. It's it's just this natural a natural consequence of that is this, this completely non dual, completely limitless compassion. That's, that's right. all that remains. So that's any, right. So many yeah. of these these guys that are choosing to, to go into seclusion are not likely fully realized.
0: That's right. They're they're still working on becoming realized. Um, once they've become realized uh, then, of course, their ability... Well, they're they realized, they're not fully realized. But uh, no matter what stage that somebody is at in, uh, in enlightenment, they're, but including as an arhat, um, their ability to teach is going to be uh, still dependent upon you know their... Uh, their innate abilities, uh, their personality characteristics, their own training and things like that. I could see that some arhats might feel that, that they are not capable of teaching or not know how to teach, but I, I can't imagine an arhat whose primary motivation wouldn't be to help other beings in whatever way they could, even if they were not, even if they didn't feel like they were competent to teach, even if they couldn't turn a series of rorschachs into a teaching they would still want to help find others, you know. The fact that somebody wants to stay in a cave by themselves means that they're still working, you know, they're still... they've still got work to do. Mm. Uh, not here. Not there yet. Yes. That's the way that I felt when I came to Arizona, is that I didn't... wasn't interested in teaching or having anybody else around or anything else. I just. I wanted to hide out in my mountains and do my own thing. I had work to do. <laughs> so. But. Okay, well, any other questions? Then uh, we're almost uh, finished uh, this first section of getting into the specifically Buddhist view of enlightenment. One last little point here that uh, I do, and I mentioned to you earlier the distinction between. The Enlightenment Experience and State of Being Enlightened. And uh, this is once again from Allman and Reichenberg Allman's book. Uh, they say, We recognize that it is possible for a person to undergo a transient experience of illumination without remaining in a permanent state of oneness. And uh, that could mean several different things. Of course, somebody on the first stage of Enlightenment is permanently transformed, but um, they're not they're not in a permanent state of oneness because that doesn't come until later on. They're not in Arhan. The other thing it could mean is that there are these amazing, incredible, mystical experiences that people can have, but they are not they, they don't do the trick. They don't make the make the change that uh, the the definition of enlightenment from a Buddhist perspective the original definition of enlightenment is all based on the permanent changes that take place and what you'll find in the Buddhist tradition is a teacher may say of a student's experience that may have been, Uh, The Enlightenment experience—we'll see over the next few years. Okay. So we'll see whether it did the trick. Okay. Now let's uh, let's look at the specifically Buddhist view of enlightenment. Um, In the sutras, we find the Buddha speaking very clearly that what he teaches is suffering and the end of suffering. And he very consistently throughout always brought everything back to this same defining characteristic. The end of suffering. In terms of, uh, of the purpose of the teaching, why he came to the teaching, what it was meant to accomplish and so forth. But, of course, in the teaching, it's made very clear that the cause of suffering is craving in the form of desire and aversion. And it's also made very, very clear that uh, the only way suffering can be completely overcome is if craving is completely and permanently extinguished. And it's also made very, very clear that Craving cannot be permanently extinguished until ignorance has been destroyed. And what's meant by ignorance here uh, specifically is ignorance as to the true nature of reality, the true nature of self. Or we might say ignorance refers to the delusion that we have of being a separate self-existent self in a world of self-existent objects. And so, although the Buddha always defined the goal of the path in terms of the end of suffering, it takes only the most cursory examination of the teaching to realize you can't have suffering without the end of craving, and you can't have the end of craving without the destruction of ignorance. So so all of that follows automatically from it. So therefore, on the basis of the original teachings of the Buddha in the sutras, we can expect an enlightened person to be number one, free from suffering, of course. Number two, free from the compulsions of desire and aversion that cause suffering. Three, free from ignorance and attachment to phenomena as relatively enduring and independently existent. (laughs) And understand that attachment to phenomena inevitably leads to dissatisfaction and suffering. Mm -hmm. And four, to be free from ignorance and attachment to the personal self as an independent, self-existent entity, whether permanently abiding or subject to annihilation, and to understand that attachment to self inevitably leads to dissatisfaction and suffering. So this is kind of a logical conclusion a simple, concise statement of, uh, of the definition of what it means to be enlightened, from the information that's provided in the sutras. In that last one, uh, they reference to the self, uh, the self as an independent, self-existent entity, whether permanently abiding or subject to an annihilation. These were the two views that were predominant at the time of the Buddha. One was that this self or soul or atman. Was permanent. That, uh, and that it would be reincarnated in a new body, like taking off a suit of clothes and putting on a new suit of clothes, uh, over and over again. And of course, within the Brahmanic, uh, with the Vedantic uh, development of the Brahmanic culture, the goal was to achieve the, the escape from the cycle of um, continual reincarnation by the Atman achieving uh, union with Brahman, which I talked about before. That's, that is the, within the Vedantic system, that's, that is the enlightenment. Um, but in terms of views of the self, the Buddha did not accept the, the Atman view of a permanent, abiding self. And the other predominant view that competed with that at the time was the materialist who also believed that you had a self, but that it was annihilated at death. Although there were some that believed that it might go on for a few hundred thousand lifetimes, but it was subject to annihilation and destruction. So the Buddha refuted those and said that, that you know, those of you who say the self is eternal, you're wrong. Those of you who say the self is annihilated, you're wrong. Not because there isn't any self. <laughs> so, but... Okay, so that's that's the Buddhist definition of enlightenment: free from suffering, free from compulsions of desire or aversion, free from ignorance and attachment to phenomena as being self-existently, uh, uh, as as independently self-existent, and free from ignorance and attachment to the personal self as being uh, an independent, and self-existent entity. Is that clear? Yeah. And how does that fit in with what we, everything else we've talked about tonight? Perfectly. <laughs> it, it actually, it actually does. It is, it is the Buddhist. It's the Buddhist take on it, but it is completely consistent with the descriptions of enlightenment mm-hmm. that come from other traditions as well. Yeah, so. absolutely. But there's not not really that, uh, we're not really talking about something very different. But one of the things that is very different, and I don't know of any other tradition that does this, is the Buddhist tradition recognizes that enlightenment is not an all or nothing thing. Uh, That it happens by stages. Now, within Buddhism, there are some schools that subscribe to sudden enlightenment. Um, And they're a little bit difficult to untangle when you look at them. Um, For some of them, their sudden enlightenment doesn't turn out to be much different than this enlightenment by stages, which is called the gradual enlightenment. But I think one of the tremendous values in, in Buddhism is that everything is systematized, it is broken down, and it's analyzed, and there's clear-cut procedures and steps and paths to follow and so forth. And that's true of all of the training that uh, takes place in meditation uh, as part of the path to enlightenment, but it's true of enlightenment itself. The four stages they are given at the bottom of this page here The first stage of enlightenment is called the stream enterer. You know, the arhat is the stream, is the person who's crossed to the other side. But the first stage is the stream enterer. Uh, Another meaning of stream enterer is that uh, uh, once you've entered the stream, you're carried by the power of the stream after that. And so uh, once, once the person has entered the stream, they're complete enlightenment, their attainment of the fourth stage is is guaranteed. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's no falling back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stream enterer is also known as the seven times returner. And the stages that follow that, uh, the, the next stage is called the once returner, uh, the third stage is called the non-returner, and then the fourth stage is called the arhat. And what these, what this returner business is all about? Well, the traditional. Uh, remember, the Buddha was teaching at a time when everybody took it for granted that that we're, you're dying, you're re- reincarnated. This was the this was the brahmanical tradition going back thousands of years. And uh, and so, what the seven times returner means is that. Somebody who has become a stream entrant would be reborn at most seven times before they become an arhat. And so, the once returner, if you've achieved that stage, then you would be reborn at most once. The third stage is called the non returner. And if you don't become an arhat in that lifetime, then the non-returner is not reborn in the sense realm, in the human realm. <coughs> but rather, they are reborn in a special, uh, uh, much higher realm, a deva realm. And they achieve complete enlightenment in, in that realm. And then an arhat is somebody who has achieved full and complete enlightenment. Now there's another way of interpreting this uh, which is more consistent with the Buddha's teaching of no self which is that and it also consists is consistent with what we what is involved in these paths and what we find there a person who is a stream entering is still uh, capable of being caught up in the world of appearances. Not for very long. And won't become too deeply immersed in it. Because he's achieved a level of knowledge that once, once his loss of perspective causes a certain amount of suffering to develop, or once the loss of perspective has caused him to behave in such a way that he started to cause visible harm to others around him, he will reawaken to the truth that he knows and will make amends. So the idea is that for somebody who's a stream entrant, this could happen a number of times. Not a tremendous number of times, not dozens of times or hundreds of times, but a few times, like... Up to seven, say. (laughs) With the second path, this person has made some great progress. They are uh, well. Let me go back to the first one and give you an analogy here because I'm going to use it in describing the second path. And in the first, uh, in the stream infant, the first path, uh, path attainment. This could be likened to. Uh, a person who's having a bad dream, and they wake up, and, ah, it's, it was just a dream. But they don't get out of bed. They don't stay awake. They doze off again, and the bad dream might start up again. This might happen a few times before they completely wake up and they get out of bed, and they're done with it once and for all. Okay, okay the second... The second path, the second stage, the the once returner. This is this is a person who <clears throat> has. They are still subject to desire and aversion, but greatly weakened, greatly attenuated, not nearly as much so as before. And so, what they do is they go back into the world of suffering deliberately for the purpose of completely and permanently uprooting all of the last traces of craving or materiality that they have. So they've returned once more, but they've returned more or less deliberately. Or this might be likened to somebody who's in the middle of a bad dream, wakes up, realizes that was just a dream, and then is able as a lucid dreamer to go back into the dream mm-hmm. and change the way that they respond to the situation. Right? And then the the third stage is is yes the the non-returner has the non-returner has overcome all craving all desire and aversion has no need to uh, actually no possibility of being caught up. In the world of, of suffering in the sense realm, ever again. The work that they have to do is is uh, is of a different sort. And then the arhat is the is the completely awakened one. So so that's the that's the Buddhist, specifically Buddhist version of enlightenment. Very very similar to the general one description that we find across different cultures. Uh, but far more systematic, and especially the emphasis on stages, different stages of enlightenment, and that it doesn't happen all at once. Um, Also, as we'll look at in more detail as we go into this, uh, there's the very systematic training and uh, preparation. Anybody have any questions about that? There is in uh, some people may have heard or may wonder well, uh, are all arhants like the Buddha was? And it depends on what ways that you're talking about. In terms of their enlightenment, an arhat is a Buddha, is fully enlightened. But there was obviously something different about the the person that we call the Buddha. After all, I don't know how many arhats there are in the world right now, but there are arhats in the world, and they don't seem to be having quite the same impact that that uh, Siddhartha Gotama did after his enlightenment. You agree? <laughs> so he is said to be a Sama Sam Buddha, a Sama sambuddha and here this is. This is part of what you might call the religious aspect of Buddhism. It is the tradition, the traditional teachings. Uh, but it is said that uh, every time that uh, in, in this vast history of sentient beings that is without beginning and without end, that, that the teachings of the Dharma always get lost there comes a time when they degenerate and are lost and forgotten and that every time this happens that a new samasa buddha appears who will come and and turn the wheel of dharma once again and reestablish these teachings in the world and uh, and so Siddhartha Gautama was the, the, the Samasambuddha of our time. And it is said that the way that somebody becomes a Samasambuddha is that in a, in a far, far distant life in the past, uh, that person would have made a commitment to the Samasambuddha, to a Samasambuddha, uh, at that time, to themselves, become a Samasam Buddha for the future. Okay. So we have this picture of that uh, I, I can't remember the term. You know, they, they had countless, uh, countless eons of, of, you know, incredible numbers of years to go back. beyond fathoming, in all of these lifetimes. And somewhere in that process, uh, the person who became our Buddha made the commitment to another Buddha in another time, and then spent all of these lifetimes in between perfecting himself, perfecting his merit, so that when he was born in that final lifetime and became uh, himself enlightened, he would have the power to re-establish the Dharma in the world and to teach huge numbers of, of people, and so that's that's why I, that's the explanation for the difference between the, the Buddha and other arhats, is that he has all these uncountable lifetimes that dedicated to uh, perfecting himself, practicing the perfections, to perfecting in, himself. incarnate. The incarnations, yes, right. but, yeah. but, yeah. I was just going to say, but if there's no self, then, yeah. mm-hmm. then nothing. Right.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. That's why I said it belongs to the religious side okay. of Buddhism. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yes?
1: You said it another time that um, Buddha never talked about incarnation, uh, but we... Re- Rebirth and that incarnation—how we understand it—is not—is not how he sees it. But here is the word again. So
0: I'm a little confused yeah.
1: with that. What do you mean by it?
0: Okay. What he did is he redefined reincarnation, and he because the the notion of reincarnation is based on the idea that the self we think we are is substantial and permanent, and. He said uh, that uh, uh, he speaks of rebirth and, and, and what is reborn. What is reborn uh, is the uh, uh, is the karma that a person has accumulated. Okay, mm-hmm. and so there are these, these, there are different levels of teaching in the uh, in the scholastic analysis of Asian Buddhism. There's a distinction between two two levels of Buddhism. They actually overlap. They're not really distinct. One is referred to as village Buddhism or lay Buddhism, and or or as religious Buddhism. Okay, and the other is referred to as virtuoso Buddhism. And uh, virtuoso Buddhism really has two divisions. Within it I mean the, this is a scholastic analysis of Buddhism as an entity in the world. Uh, virtuoso Buddhism is seen as having two divisions, a scholastic division, which are all those that, that carefully analyze and scrutinize the doctrine and make everything add up and make like that make sense of it. And then the contemplative division of, of Buddhist of virtuoso Buddhism, who says, uh, "I don't need your analysis. I'm going to sit down." Hold my legs and my hands, close my eyes, and find out for myself. Okay? And there are numerous what appear to be contradictions between village Buddhism and virtuoso Buddhism, or lay Buddhism and virtuoso Buddhism. But scholastic Buddhism has very neatly sewed them all together so that they, they flow. So with uh, there is one level of Buddhism where you speak of reincarnation. But then, on the more sophisticated level, this is explained in terms of the doctrines of emptiness and no self so that there is no contradiction. Okay, um, You can't explain to large numbers of people who are not going to put the time and the effort and perhaps lack the educational background uh, and and the intellectual ability these very very subtle uh, interpretations and so what you find is that amongst religious buddhists uh, it follows a pattern of most religions as i was talking earlier talking about christian you know an ordinary christian compared to a christian mystic an ordinary buddhist believes that he or she, as they perceive themselves, is going to return to this world. Mm-hmm. And they believe that uh, by keeping precepts and doing various uh, meritorious acts, that they are going to ensure for themselves a, a rebirth under good circumstances, under beneficial circumstances. Uh, and, and of course, the. Uh, within that belief system, they could be reborn as a lizard or a frog or in a hell realm or as a hungry ghost or anything else. So, you see, once again, there is the the polarity between the individual and some some power beyond them. And then there's a set of, of rules and behaviors and things like that by which they can manipulate their own future destiny. And so, religious Buddhism is based on, on the technically erroneous assumption that there is a self that is reincarnated, and that, that that self is the carrier of karma and is the beneficiary of, of merit and so forth. Mm-hmm. Okay. But at the level of virtuoso Buddhism, this is all reinterpreted, that the only thing that continues is the uh, is the uh, karmic propensities that have been uh, developed. And then the further analysis of that becomes very sophisticated. But on the religious side of Buddhism, of course, things have to be explained about how come, How come our our arahants aren't like Kabuda was? (laughs) Right.
1: So yes. I I find all of that very problematic in Buddhism as as well as other religious the religious side because you know, if 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 the virtuoso side of Buddhism tolerates this other Mm -hmm. kind of religious Buddhism, Mm -hmm. it's tolerating a lie, isn't it?
0: Well, it's not seen that way. It's seen as as having a powerfully beneficial effect on large numbers of people who otherwise would have no nothing to counteract their uh, uh, unwholesome predispositions. You know, it brings it a morality, it brings an order. Not only that, it creates the opportunity for some of them, to decide to go into it more deeply or to take on uh, robes and go into the monasteries. So it's not seen at all as spreading a lie. It's rather seen as as presenting truth in a form that can be understood by people of a lesser capacity. So, if... And, and and that's a that's a valid point of view. If those people, if there are those people who can't understand this other view, and that's what I mean by lesser capacity, then they're better off believing that if they keep precepts, and if they practice generosity, and if they you know avoid harming uh, others, and and all of these other things, that uh, they will be. Uh, reborn in better circumstances. And at the same time, I can say to himself, well, in a sense, since there is no self anyway, and since every action, mental or physical, has consequences, and since those consequences will be realized in the future, that, that in that sense there will be a future being who reaps the benefits of those actions. So, in that sense, strictly speaking, uh, it's not a lie. It's not false. It's just a. It's, it's just offering the truth to somebody in a form that they can understand more easily.
1: So they may reach enlightenment in spite of their beliefs.
0: Well, as a matter of fact, they can. Yes, mm-hmm. the, the beliefs are not. As a matter of fact, the only thing that's important in terms of enlightenment is that you are able to step outside of your beliefs. Long enough to become enlightened, and then after you're enlightened, you can go back to trying to interpret everything in terms of those beliefs again, you know. and that's not a problem. You know, if you're if you're Teresa of Avila or John of the Cross, you interpret it in terms of Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if you're a Zen Roshi, you interpret it in terms of uh, the belief system that you brought with you. And really, you know, we say you've got to remember it's all empty. Our mind. It is, really. (laughs) I love that. It it is. It It really is empty. And that's not not an empty statement, either. (laughs) What do we mean by empty? We mean that these brains that we have, these minds we have, can only work by constructing things in a particular way. And there's nothing inherently more correct about one construction... Uh, than, than, than another. I mean, there can be the, 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 there can be a greater or lesser degree of validity in in some sense, but there can be equally valid constructions that seem to be totally different from each other. You know. It is. It really, truly really is all, all empty underneath it all. Yeah. Once you
1: achieve an enlightenment. Yes. Once you have achieved enlightenment, what need would you have to go back to the particular religious construction of reality?
0: To teach. Well, <clears throat> it is, it is the framework that you have, in order to uh, communicate with others. And what need would you have to find a different framework as long as you could do that? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, And if, you're, if you become fully enlightened and your greatest uh, uh, wish is to help others to achieve what you have, mm-hmm. then uh, there's no reason to throw out the set of tools that you used, rather, you you know, you will naturally want to to uh, use those and, and to show others how to use them in the same way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, what you could do now, in that regard, what you could do is say, well, this this system, this philosophy, this theology, whatever it is that I learned. You know, uh, I can leave out the parts that are are uh, most useless, and I can maybe modify the ones that are more problematic. And we've seen this. We see this in the history of all religions, and we especially see it in Buddhism because Buddhism, by and large, has been less rigidly bound. You know, as it has taken on more and more of the accretions of religious form, it has been, you know, it has still been a predominantly mystical tradition. Mm-hmm. And so you have, constantly have people becoming enlightened. And they become enlightened and they say, well, you know, I have a whole lot better way to teach this. right? But, and as a result, you've had a lot of new sutras come up, too. And they say, here, I've got a better way of teaching this. and. And you have a you know a, a new sutra that presents that better way of teaching it. So. And there's
1: no pope. What's that? And there's no pope. That's, that's
0: right. There's no pope. <laughs> I think that much about. You said a little
1: bit like like saying
0: before enlightenment
1: you carry water and chop wood, and after enlightenment you carry. Well, water Well, certainly, and as, water. <laughs> yes. As far
0: as as far as having the same <laughs> Just with the having people. the same system that you started with, it's true. You know. Before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water, I mean, that's referring to something else, but also, true, you know, you know if, if this is the system that you spent the last 20 years or whoever knows what you're training in, I mean, you're not going to throw it out and go shopping for a new one all over again. Mm-hmm. You're going to make use of it to continue your own path, and then when it's reached its fulfillment, to teach and to guide others and to help mm-hmm. others. So, in, in that regard, it, it is the same way. But what you'll see over and over again in Buddhism is it keeps being uh, improved upon, changed, modified, you know, added to, refined. And uh, these refinements are being done by people who have a- achieved the final path. And they've looked... You know, see, what is taught today in the process of being taught, acquires this kind of conceptual baggage and distortion and uh, uh, cultural accretions. Um, Buddhism taught in Sri Lanka to Sri Lankans is presented in a particular way that they're going to understand best and clearest. Mm -hmm. And that's not the same way that Buddhism, that the same ideas are conveyed in Tibet, because it's a different culture. So in Tibet, it's taught in a different form, which Tibetans can understand and catch on to a lot more quickly than Sri Lankans could. And likewise in Thailand or China or Japan. You know, each culture has its own, provides its own context. And so the teaching has to change to be effective in the context. Over time, the teaching becomes distorted as a result of the context. Somebody else comes along and straightens it out again. (laughs) Then it gets taken out of that cultural context into a completely new cultural context. And the teachings two things happen they don't work as well so they get changed once again but also because they brought some stuff from this other culture uh, it got further distorted because it didn't make the same kind of sense and so you know on the one hand you look at buddhism and you say what a mess it is so confusing <laughs> yeah, it's and so contradictory alive. And, you know <laughs> it's
1: alive it's a messy,
0: That's alive. true. It is alive, and it's. <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> if it were just a set of teachings that you know the Buddha said this, and nobody's allowed to change a word of it, and everything else, and there, there are traditions that try to make that happen too. That's another way it gets started. They call it the Bible, <laughs> you know. But as long as, as long as it's alive, as long as there are new Buddhas coming into the world, new arhats, new enlightened people teaching others. It's going to keep changing and taking new forms. And, you know, and it uses whatever it has. But I can't imagine how over the last 25 years, 2,500 years, uh, that Buddhism could have remained established without... Offering people the idea of reincarnation and the ideas of accumulation of merit and superior rebirths and things like that. You know, it's, and and I think, you know, the Buddha recognized that. He used that language, he used that as a means of teaching in his time, and that's happened ever since. I'm wondering what's going to happen in the future, though, because in in Western society, we don't have a tradition of believing in reincarnation. In Western society, there is a very strong component who uh, is more like the materialists, and uh, they, they 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 view the idea of the self, but they're kind of suspecting that that self disappears uh you know when the body breaks up. We also, Western society, as I mentioned to you, science and psychology and philosophy have all discovered the truth of no-self. And it's, it's starting to be more and more understood. So I suspect that we're coming up on a Buddhism of the future, which is going to uh, teach a much more refined version of these things, a much more sophisticated version of these things. A little bit closer to the virtuoso Buddhism that uh, has heretofore been confined to the uh, people in the monasteries who have devoted their lives to either scholastic <coughs> study or meditation. Hmm. And I'm very eager to see how, how that turns out, but I think that's uh, I think it has to happen. That's part of what I'm talking going to be hopefully talking with you about this weekend is that um, that what what human beings need to do is to adopt a completely new value system that's based on, on this kind of wisdom and understanding that comes from these mystical traditions We've got, to, we've got to grow out of and leave behind the, the mythical, magical past that, uh, that we dwelt in. Because large numbers of people have to achieve a transcendent understanding. Every, it would be wonderful if everybody did. But enough of our society has to achieve a transcendent understanding. That society's values as a whole change. Otherwise, we're going to, you know, talk about all these species going extinct. We're going to be one of them. And we're we're going to put ourselves away. That's well,
1: in a way, uh, isn't the the very fact that our our culture is in such a dissolute in such a which in such a dissolute and strange period working for this transformation. Yes, uh, because it's it's becoming more and more painful and more and more impossible to sustain the delusion.
0: Yes, yes. yeah, But the interesting thing about Buddhism is that it works so well with uh, Western notions of science, and, mm-hmm. and so I think the 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 potential is is enormous and.
1: Wonderful.
0: Mm-hmm. So I we pretty much used up the time, and I wanted to do some meditation with you, and. Uh,